It's January 2024. Happy New Year and welcome to Muse News, the BCMA's monthly museum sector news podcast. Each month we recap some of the latest breaking news, happenings, and announcements from museums, galleries, and heritage organizations across BC and beyond. I'm Ryan Hunt, joined by my co-host Lorenda Calvert. Join us as we explore the latest Muse News. Thanks, Ryan. The Royal BC Museum is rolling out a pilot program that will offer free admission to low-income Victoria residents enrolled in a city program. The museum will offer one complimentary ticket to the museum to new members of the city's Leisure Involvement for Everyone, or LIFE, program. The LIFE program, which was operated in the city for more than 25 years, offers eligible low-income individuals and families a combination of credit and free drop-in visits to recreational programs and services within the city. The My Museum pilot program will operate until the end of 2024. The museum also offers free admission to Indigenous people and new Canadians as part of the Canoe Cultural Access Pass program. The Royal BC Museum's mandate is to be a place for all people of British Columbia, acting CEO Tracy Drake said in a statement. Launching this essential community program aligns strongly with our mandate and, more importantly, creates future accessibility to spark the minds and imaginations of future generations of museum goers. Victoria Mayor, Marianne Alto, said the partnership with the RBCM on My Museum reflects the city's commitment to fostering inclusivity, ensuring that everyone in our community has the opportunity to explore and enjoy the rich offerings of the World BC Museum. For more information, go to the worldbcmuseum.ca slash initiative. A tangled mess. Canadian forgery scandal comes into full public view. An exhibition at the Vancouver Art Gallery grapples with how the museum ended up with 10 fake works previously attributed to J.E.H. MacDonald, a member of the famous Group of Seven. Last month, while inaugurating an exhibit devoted to J.E.H. MacDonald, an English-born co-founder of Canada's famous Group of Seven, the Vancouver Art Gallery officially acknowledged that 10 oil sketches of MacDonald's it had acquired in 2015 are in fact forgeries. J.E.H. MacDonald, A Tangled Garden, foregrounds the forensic methodology used to determine whether works are correct, as well as showcasing the Vancouver Art Gallery's Group of Seven collection, while mediating on the value and meaning of authenticity. The story of the work's provenance is told in a famed press release from the museum dated 13 January 2015, announcing the gift. A story then-Vancouver Art Gallery director Kathleen Bartles describes as incredible. The sketches are touted as studies for McDonald's most iconic large-scale paintings, which were in important collections across the country, including at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada. The 2015 announcement explained that the sketches were buried in the backyard of McDonald's home near Toronto in the 1930s, by J.E.H. and his son, Thoreau, in order to preserve and safeguard the works before J.E.H. traveled to Barbados for health reasons. Wrapped in cellophane and tar paper, they purportedly remained buried for more than 40 years. According to Globe and Mail reporter Marsha Lederman, who broke the story of the forgeries in December and has been following the saga for years, the story was told to the Vancouver Art Gallery that the works were unearthed in 1974 for the benefit of Toronto developer and collector Max Mercar. He was advised by another Group of Seven member, 
A.J. Kaysen, buy the sketches because they would one day be valuable. When McCurr's widow, Rita, died in 2012, their son Ephraim discovered the sketches in the basement of the family home, and his brother Mevel made the donation to the Vancouver Art Gallery in 2015 in consultation with the gallery's curators. The Vancouver Art Gallery team found inspiration in a 2021 show at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, Ontario, that invited viewers to decide for themselves if collections of the works by Tom Thompson were authentic. And, as revealed by John S. Delandre's 2022 book, The Great Canadian Art Fraud Case, which chronicled the unraveling of a Thompson forgery ring in 1962, when a police investigation was initiated by the National Gallery of Canada and Kaysen was enlisted to assist. The only thing as quintessentially Canadian as the Group of Seven may be its art forgeries. One of our elders wrote, if there was an emergency, a woman would grab her woolly dog and her child, and that's the only two things, said Squamish Nation member Sanakula Weiss, demonstrating the cultural significance of the now extinct woolly dog to the Coast Salish indigenous communities of the Pacific Northwest. Weiss was one of several Coast Salish people who worked with researchers from the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History alongside anthropologist Logan Kistler and evolutionary molecular biologist Audrey Lynn to conduct a years-long study of a 160-year-old woolly dog pelt called mutton, which was found within the museum's vast collection. It's the only known woolly dog fleece in the world, and researchers sought to pinpoint a genetic understanding of the dog and its prized woolly fur, which was the traditional material used for weaving blankets, sweaters, capes, and other garments for thousands of years. Woolly dogs were similar in size to a fox, or spitz breed, but it had a unique double coat of white fur, much like any of the Alaskan breeds. This means woolly dogs had two layers of fur, the first being longer hair and the second being shorter, more woolly textured fur. The Salish communities across the west coast of Washington State and British Columbia bred these dogs carefully and sheared them like sheep. In many communities, most of the fibers used in weaving would have been woolly dog or mountain goat, and then there would be plant fibers mixed in, said Weiss. Mevin's pelt had been rediscovered, prompting Lynn to begin putting together a team of researchers. The museum had originally received the pelt from the dog's owner, George Gibbs, a naturalist and ethnographer. Gibbs had worked on the Northwest Boundary Survey expedition to map the land between British Columbia in Canada and the United States to designate the border between the two countries. It is believed it was during this time that Gibbs took possession of Mutton when he was just a puppy. In 1859, when Mutton died, Gibbs sent his pelt to the Smithsonian Institute, which had been established in 1846. It's the world's largest museum, education center, and research facility, and estimated to house about 154 million items. Through the indigenous concept known as two-eyed seeing, the group of scientists and indigenous elders, knowledge keepers, and master weavers learned from mutton with the combined strength of indigenous knowledge and Western science. Lynn, now a postdoctoral researcher at the American Museum of Natural History, said without the oral histories and knowledge that the elders and knowledge keepers shared, researchers wouldn't have understood what we were looking at, basically, and it would have been extremely difficult to create a full picture of Mutton. We were very excited to participate in a study that embraces the most sophisticated Western science with the most established traditional knowledge, Michael Pavel, an elder with the Snohomish community in Washington, said in a press statement. He remembers hearing about woolly dogs early in his childhood. It was incredibly rewarding to contribute to this effort to embrace and celebrate our understanding of the woolly dog. 
In the first meeting held over Zoom, the Coast Salish group, Lynn, and the other scientists were given the opportunity to see mutton's fur under a microscope. I think that we were incredibly curious about every part of mutton, Lynn said. We were all together around mutton, and everyone was looking, peering very, very closely at the fibers. You know, with the magnifying glasses and just sharing our impressions and also sharing stories. Throughout the investigation, the team systematically analyzed Mutton's genetic code, the genetic material in his cells, called genomes, and compared it against historical and modern breeds of dogs discovered the distinct attributes of woolly dogs. More than 11,000 different genomes in Mutton's genes were analyzed to determine what characteristics gave woolly dogs their fluffy fleece and wool fibers. It has really incredible special properties, said Lynn. Its texture, it wants to clump together. The team estimated that woolly dogs diverged from other breeds up to 5,000 years ago. The findings outlined that 85% of mutton's ancestry was genetically similar to pre-colonial dogs from Newfoundland and British Columbia. They also identified 28 genes linked to hair growth and follicle regeneration, including one that causes a woolly hair phenotype in humans and another linked to curly hair in other dogs. Similar genes were even activated in the genomes of woolly mammoths, reads the press statement. Woolly dog ancestry is surprising because mutton lived decades after the introduction of European dog breeds in the region. This makes it likely that Coast Salish communities continued to maintain woolly dogs' unique genetic makeup until right before the dogs were wiped out, reads the press statement. It is believed woolly dogs went extinct in the third quarter of the 19th century during colonization. Through cultural teachings shared by the Coast Salish, the researchers learned that the matriarchs of the communities kept the dogs in their homes separated from other dogs, including those used for hunting. This was done to restrict and carefully manage woolly dog breeding. The dog possessed spiritual significance that were often treated as beloved family members. In some areas, it is said that the dogs were kept on islands not far from the communities in an effort to preserve their unique qualities. Woolly dogs were the only animals allowed inside of the longhouses, explained Weiss. There's also coastal and interior, different Salish people that had different ways of keeping them. Some were on special isolated islands or in a special kind of cave dwelling. Or in the interior, there's more of an underground, half above and half underneath the ground dwelling there where the dogs would be kept. Colonial policies of forced assimilation, displacement, and cultural genocide were more likely to have led to the breed's demise, making it increasingly difficult or forbidden for Coast Salish communities to maintain their woolly dogs. It's like if the federal Indian agent came, we would have to basically follow the rules of having our homes inspected or the dogs were forced to be let go, explained Weiss. Providing woolly dogs with their specialized diet would have been gravely impacted by colonialism. I really like to point out to people that the woolly dogs were not bred to extinction because of accidentally breeding with the new dog breed that was introduced by Europeans, Weiss said. We were forced to give up our relationship through residential schools, through the potlatch ban, through being banned from fishing. So when we're not allowed to go fishing to provide food for our families and for our woolly dogs, that's a larger part than it's just being an accidental mistake for them to not be raised anymore. So just showing other parts of genocide around the world, from buffaloes being slaughtered as kind of control over indigenous people, is very similar thing that happened to our woolly dogs here. Weiss also explained that when colonization occurred, the colonizers had a very different view of the role of women within a community. I think another factor, which is related to the cultural repression, is disempowering the women in the communities because it was the high-ranking women who were keeping the woolly dogs, and this is not the way that the missionaries or the Canadian government had wanted it. They didn't want that, so taking the power away from the women was another factor. Many questions have been answered through the research of mutton, but still more questions have arisen. 
so the team hopes to continue researching mutton and other woolly dog artifacts. Seismic upgrades at UBC Museum of Anthropology Great Hall to wrap up in June 2024. The completion date for the colossal seismic upgrades currently underway at the University of British Columbia Museum of Anthropology's Great Hall have now been set for June 2024, a year later than anticipated in the project's initial timeline. The extensive construction plan requiring a full rebuild of the Great Hall was originally scheduled for completion within 18 months, which should have seen the museum open in July of this year. The changes will help to preserve the integrity of the iconic glass-paneled building in the event of a major earthquake. Seismic base isolators installed underneath the museum's main floor slab are the primary component of the reconstruction, overseen by Nick Milklevich Architects, Incorporated. The isolators separate the building's foundation from the structure on top of it, effectively reducing the amount of energy transferred from the ground to the museum itself during an earthquake. The upgrades will also include improvements to fire protection features and the replacement of skylights. The hall is receiving a few cosmetic upgrades too, including new lights, carpeting, and roll-down shading. Though the Great Hall itself has been closed to the public since then, the rest of the museum remained accessible until January 16, 2023, when it also closed to visitors to accelerate progress. It's scheduled to reopen when construction is completed in June. The project's 2024 completion happens to coincide with the Museum of Anthropology's 75th anniversary of operation. It was initially located inside the UBC Library's basement. Special programming is in the works to celebrate and will be announced as summer approaches. The 112-year-old steam engine in Prince George, BC could be coming off the rails due to its high cost of operation. The Little Prince is a wood-burning, dinky steam engine that was built in Iowa and arrived in BC on a sternwheeler in 1912 to help support construction of the Grand Truck Pacific Railway. CN Rail donated the train to the city in 1971, and it was later moved to a small rail yard built in what is now Clayton-Tenay Memorial Park. Operation of the Fort George Railway and Little Prince train was turned over to the Exploration Place Museum in 2009, where a group of workers and volunteers have kept it running as a summer tourist attraction. Upwards of 20,000 passengers ride the train annually, and it is featured in promotional content for the city, which states the Little Prince is the last engine of its kind operating in North America. It is a piece of the fiber of the community of what is Prince George, Exploration Place CEO Tracy Calajero said in an interview with CBC Daybreak North. We've got grandparents bringing grandchildren to ride the train, whose parents brought them. But she also said that as her organization struggles with financial losses stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic, it can no longer afford to run the train without more support from the city, specifically a $100,000 annual operating budget, along with a commitment to build up a capital fund of $100,000 in the coming years to pay for future repairs. It's not an ask, she told city council at the presentation Monday night. I'm telling you what it's going to cost to operate your train adding when she would be happy for the city to find another organization to take over operations of the Little Prince should they choose to do so. Despite its small size, the Little Prince is not a toy, Caladero says. This is a six-ton steam engine that operates under Canada's passenger rail rules. It runs on 2.2 kilometers of track, which the museum says is Canada's shortest passenger railway, fully regulated by Transport Canada. 
That means it is subject to inspections, needs regular track repairs, and is required to be operated by licensed conductors and engineers who are expected to complete more than 100 hours of training and tests. While the city provides $25,000 a year to the museum, Caladero says costs are high enough that she has lost between 10 to 80,000 annually, not counting the hours of her own time needed to keep the railway in compliance with federal regulations. She said she has repeatedly warned council that the current funding model is not adequate to keep the train operating long-term. Without more funding, the museum will no longer be able to run it. The museum is in a serious financial crisis at the moment, and my board will not authorize anything that looks like a financial risk, she said. Cost of living and inflation are key concerns as GVPTA releases 2023 BC Arts, Culture, and Heritage Sector Insights Report. The Greater Vancouver Professional Theatre Alliance has released results of a province-wide survey aimed at creating better understandings of the current state of the arts sector. The Fall 2023 BC Arts, Culture, and Heritage Sector Insight Report is based on survey responses collected from individual artists, cultural workers, and representatives of arts, culture, and heritage organizations from November 3rd through 22nd, 2023. It looks at factors such as finances, health and well-being, housing, trends, obstacles, outlook, and more. Of the 431 respondents, 63% were individuals, and the other 37% responded on behalf of organizations. The top five disciplines represented by organizational respondents included theaters at 33%, community arts at 31%, museums and heritage at 29%, music at 26%, and visual arts at 25%. GVPTA Executive Director Kenji Maeda says the first thing he looks at when reviewing the data is questions about stress, anxiety, and optimism. Quote, on one hand, it's great to see that average stress and anxiety is lower compared to two years ago, Maeda says. On the other hand, it's concerning that more than a quarter of organizations and more than a third of individuals have low or very low optimism that the sector will be healthy and sustainable in 2024. When morale is low, we, the community, government funders, all of us together, must work better together to address the challenges and do more for what's working well. Quote, the areas I'm particularly concerned about right now are the impacts of inflation, cost of living, and rising expenses, he says. Almost half, 48% of respondents, shared that they expect to make less than $30,000 this year, which is not a living wage. One third, 32%, said that their housing situation is less secure compared to five years ago. And about two thirds, 64%, shared that more than 30% of their income goes towards their rent or mortgage. It should be noted that for the CMHC, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, housing is considered affordable if it costs less than 30% of a household's before-tax income. What's making Maida feel hopeful are reflections that people shared about what's going well over the past year. From individuals who've said they've taken themselves more seriously as artists, to someone who got their first grant, to an organization that opened a brand new facility. Quote, there are positive stories from across the province, Maida says, but we don't want positive reflections of, I survived this year, to be seen as an acceptable narrative year after year. The report has been shared with government, funders, and grant makers to give them a snapshot of where the sector is at, Maida says. The report, along with other data, reports, 
stories from the community will be leveraged in advocacy efforts that the BC Coalition of Arts, Culture, and Heritage undertakes. Design students in Richmond are taking on their first major woodworking project and their creations will be displayed in an upcoming exhibition at the Museum of Vancouver. Product design students at KPU's Wilson School of Design have been tasked with making chairs out of donated vintage mahogany, giving the materials a second life and promoting a circular economy. Under the mentorship of local artists, second-year students forming nine teams each made at least one chair this past fall term, and another five are in the works. One of the creations include the Bloom Chair, designed and produced by students Sarah Lee, Quinton Keller, and Jordan McAdams. The classic four-leg design is inspired by Ming Dynasty chairs from Lee's childhood and features a seat motif of mahogany tree blossoms falling at its peak. Mahogany's history is a heavy one. It's not easy to talk about. It deals with colonialism, slavery, and exploitation, and we often forget the beauty of the wood itself, said Lee. Our chair aims to strip away at these notions by showing the seed, the bloom, and the life. The students are using mahogany harvested in Guatemala and Nicaragua between the 1950s and 1970s. It was put in storage for many years by a boating equipment business that shuttered before it was ultimately donated to the Museum of Vancouver. When we delivered the mahogany wood to Wilson School of Design, all we knew is it would be transformed into chairs. We had no idea who would be making them or what the chairs would look like, said Vivian Guslin, Museum of Vancouver Director of Collections and Exhibitions. I am so very impressed. Most professional designers will never get to design chairs. These students are not even out of school and have designed chair prototypes, some of the better looking prototypes ever. The chairs will be featured along with pieces from the Museum of Vancouver's permanent collection in an exhibition about the design and cultural history of chairs set to kick off in early 2025. With a working title of Take a Seat, the exhibition is a sequel to Museum of Vancouver's current exhibition, Claim and Repair, The Mahogany Project. It aims to challenge viewers to reevaluate the significance of chairs and how they represent their creators, as well as showcase the design initiative of urban mining, which invites designers to create new objects using construction and demolition waste. The students' creations will be on display for up to one year and are available for sale. Partial proceeds will go to the reforestation efforts in Central America. And that's January 2024's edition of Muse News. If you have any news, information, or stories to share for this podcast, please email us at bcma at museum.bc.ca. We look forward to seeing you in another episode of Muse News!